2: This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Happy to have you back here on Afternoons with Mike. Got a great program lined up for you on this Friday we're going to start off with dr Jerry Wilbur he's a first-time guest and we also will be hearing from Alvida King dr Alvida King she is the niece of Martin Luther King Jr right now let's go to Dr Wilbur with me right now on the line Dr Jerry Wilbur from he's out in the Pacific Northwest out in the Vancouver area welcome to my program sir
3: yes thank you for having me it.
2: it's pretty exciting now I, you have been obviously uh, a, a writer for some time now you've got your second book that's coming out or out already the first book was called true blue rebellion and it is uh, a bit of a satirical fiction book with a story that sounds so incredibly interesting because you're, you're taking all of the writing tools and the gifts of imagery that you've been given in your life, and uh, you're putting it out there. And I think you're touching on some nerves in our culture, my friend, from what I can tell about it. So give us a little bit of the inspiration of, and how it was that you wrote these books.
3: Well, I kept getting asked by people, uh, being a psychologist, I kept being asked by people what was going wrong. Now, this was in 2013. And uh, I, you know, as I, as I say, there's two words that don't appear in the Bible, retire and oops. <laughs> and so I found myself, uh, 2013, basically looking at uh, no longer really having to work, but asking a lot of questions and having a lot of people ask me questions. What's going wrong? And, of course, I turned to Scripture, and one of the Scriptures that uh, impressed me was Isaiah 520. And uh, the reason I did that is I was thinking, man, my parents would be shocked. This is 2013. And I thought my parents, if they were still alive, would be shocked yeah. uh, at what was going on. And actually, my mom was still alive. She passed away uh, about a year or two later. And uh, if you remember, Isaiah 520 says that, uh, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And uh, I remember her comment saying, it just appears that everything is upside down. I thought, my goodness, it's really upside down. So I wrote my first book. Uh, basically on that about a, about an, what could an average guy do, because people kept saying to me, well, what can we do? And it's all about a guy who decides to stand up, even though he's put in a situation where most people might just give in because he was offered a lot of things to just play along. And instead, he stands up and stands up for faith, family, and freedom. And uh, these were not too popular messages in 2013, at least in the secular world. And uh, now people are looking back and saying, oh, those eerily prophetic
2: I can say that, far, yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. How far we've how far we've really gone in ten years. So uh, the inspiration for the book was to try to answer what I thought was going wrong. And I had been a counselor for a number of years, and some of the people I had worked with were definitely psychopaths. So I thought, how many psychopaths are there? And as I started looking around and looking at a lot of research that's been done, as it ends up that it's uh, not a small problem. Some people will tell you twenty to thirty percent of uh, CEOs. Uh, are psychopathic. And that's uh, Robert Hare, if anybody wants to say, well, who is he getting this from? But Robert Hare's written several books on psychopathy, mm-hmm. snakes and suits, and he's got just a, tons of different books. And politicians, of course. And uh, you say, well, what's a psychopath? Well, a psychopath is a person that can lie with no sense of guilt. Matter of fact, just recently someone said, well, one thing Trump ought to do if he gets back in is he ought to make everybody take a lie detector test. And I said, well, the problem with that is a real psychopath can usually pass a lie detector test. They don't have the anxiety that we do. If we knew we were telling a lie, <laughs> they would they really tell a lie than tell the truth.
2: Now, I wasn't aware and, of that. Uh, I mean, it is possible then to lie your way through one of those, huh? Yeah,
3: yes, yes. Uh, we've known that uh, for years. Uh, uh, special forces people are trained on that. It's not an easy thing to do. You have to really be able to control your your uh, your anxiety and everything else. But uh, that's one of the things that psychopaths are able to do. They they have really no empathy. And up until about 2013-14, uh, it was pretty hard to really tell a psychopath uh, from anybody else. But uh, since then, we have a lot of brain scanning machines. And, and then, by the way, in the book, I talk about this. The reason that I say in the book that they come out into the open is because now they know they can be detected. If you put them on an fMRI, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but a PET scan or an fMRI and scan their brain, you can identify a psychopath. Uh,
2: now that's fascinating. Stuff How stuff can stuff you do down. that? How does that work?
3: Well, uh, it looks at where the brain is active. Uh, some of the some of the the uh, some of them study the electricity in the brain. Some study the blood flow in the brain, and it actually scans the brain. Uh, psychologists are very excited because for years this was called our skull was called the skull cave, and we knew there was a three and a half pound meat machine inside there, but we couldn't tell what was going on. But now with this new high tech scanning. We can actually see which parts of the brain are working and which parts aren't. It ends up that psychopaths have a dead zone, definitely a dead zone, where most of us would have our seat of our empathy. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's all the anterior and posterior cingulate in the brain. Not mm-hmm. to, get to get too much of the weeds. So we can actually uh, take brain scans and see people that are psychopathic. Sociopaths are a little bit harder. Those are people that have really learned to lie and to steal and probably come from traumatic childhood backgrounds. Their brains are pretty much the same as ours. But psychopaths, about 5% of the population, uh, I was listening to a guy yesterday and they think the percentage now may be higher of the population, can actually tell lies with no problems. Um, A gentleman went around, uh, got some uh, funding, I went around to many of the major prisons in New Mexico and found that 50% of the people in the most violent section of the prison were psychopaths. Wow. Wow. yeah. Now there are some very successful psychopaths manage to keep hidden. Um, have a tendency, of many surgeons. I shouldn't say many, but some surgeons, some CEOs, some politicians. And usually they've learned that uh, they have to control their impulses, so they'll, or they'll they'll get in trouble. It doesn't stop from lying. And um, yeah. So that's that's. I don't mean to.
2: <laughs> no, that's a great. I, it really yep, helps because when i was reading the kind of uh, the overview the thumb sketch of your books uh-huh. uh, you that word showed up along with the savantism and the, yep. this yep. these are kind of like you you said getting into the weeds for a psychologist you live in this kind of realm uh, most people they, they're only familiar with the term psychopath. It might be from some movie they've seen. They, they don't realize that we're living in a day and age, as you've just so aptly said, where people can lie and do lie without seeming any uh, despair or any kind of loss of conscience. Uh, it seems to be no problem at all for them. They just yep. uh, have a seared conscience, perhaps, right?
3: Right, and they're definitely attracted to power. And that's part of the problem that we have in the United States is that never before has so much power been concentrated in one place. Despite what our founders, you know, our founders, uh, go back to Isaiah, Isaiah 33, 22, the, the founders used that scripture to do the balance of powers. The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king, and he will care for us. And uh, they use that to come up with the three balances of power. And uh, unfortunately, over the years, that's been eroded now. Yeah. A lot of people tell you. And, and the power was not supposed to be in Washington, D.C. The power was supposed to be in each of the 50 states, and even then, down to the local government. And man, has that changed dramatically.
2: And oh, you're so Psychopaths right.
3: are attracted to power, dominance, and control. So never before has so much power been in one place. You say military power, economic power, and if you threw in Hollywood, you've got cultural power. You go throughout the history of the world, and never before you can say, "Well, Roman Empire." Well, yeah, but there was still China. There was other places. You know, granted they were powerful in the known world, but we're talking about so much power, and that immediately immediately attracts psychopaths. That's uh, they don't have any empathy. I mentioned about the part of their brain, the amygdala, that gives them empathy is gone. But one thing they do have is a great desire for power, dominance, and control.
2: Mm. So whet so the attractive. appetite of our listeners, if you will, and give them kind of a sketch as to what your book, True Blue Rebellion, is all about.
3: Well, um, and let me, if I can jump just for a second, the reason I use the letter or the word blue is because that's been stolen from us. Mm-hmm. Historically, it was the boys in blue or the guys in blue, the people in blue against the red coats. And then um, as I was growing up, I'm old enough that I remember the statement was better dead than red. And it was the red Chinese and the red communists and the sign of rebellion was all red. And then about 1970s, they stole that color from us, especially in the 1980s. And he started naming the more conservative, more Christian areas, the red area. Right. And they said, we're in right. the blue states. And so I said, no, we're going to get this back. We're going to be a true blue rebellion. We're going to get back. Blue is the symbol. Not only that's my favorite color, if you can see me right now, I got a blue T-shirt and a blue shirt on.
2: <laughs> and they get stole it.
3: that, along with a rainbow, of course. They stole a rainbow also.
2: That is right. And so...
3: Yes, the part of their deception is to is to steal words and twist words and to turn words around and use them. You know, think pro-choice. Who could really be against choice, right? And yet you realize they that's not what they mean when they say pro-choice.
2: No, when they yeah. say that, they mean their choice.
3: Their choice, exactly. So it's about power, dominance, and control. So one of the things in the books I try to do is show people different ways that we could – rebel, uh, against what's happening. Part of that I've mentioned to you earlier in our earlier discussion, I think off oh, air that of I'm very involved in mentoring and trying to get people back involved in the public schools until the churches don't retreat. We've retreated too often and, uh, we can't retreat. We've got to start reaching out into the public schools. We've got to start reaching out and people say, yeah, oh, well, what if I get, well, you know, that's, uh, the American church has had it pretty easy. Uh, I had an interview recently with people that were genocide survivors from Iraq and genocide survivors from Iran. And I have friends that are ministers and, and reaching out in Pakistan and a number of other places. And they tell you, man, the Christian church has had it very, very, very easy. And now it's, uh, it, you know, we got to get out of the comfort zone and into the combat zone. And by mm-hmm. that, I don't mean violence. I just mean getting back involved. And so the book talks a little bit about uh, reservations for the temporarily bewildered. People say, what's that? And that's where they bring te- we bring people in and we teach them a lot of positive things. They get mentored. They get taught a lot of positive skills. I'm really big on the potential in the human brain is amazing. We haven't even touched on it yet. Savantism, uh, which is uh, another whole topic, uh, is uh, people think of Rain Man. And they think, well, that's only for... People that are uh, challenged, people I get no, no. So there's some, what's called sudden savantism, where people suddenly desire, get develop a great desire for mathematics or music and become uh, highly skilled. They said, we're not sure what they're, if they're tapping into some type of Wi-Fi or what, but all of a sudden, they get this desire to do these things. And we know the brain has, has this unbelievable potential. So the book is all about true revolution. It's not only that, but it's also about a revolution of the brain, trying to get people to use the potential that they have, and you can get smarter every day.
2: You know, I and think so. back often, Doctor, when I uh, when we have a discussion like this, I think of a, a guy who said something that I've never forgotten, and he talked about Central Florida. You know, we're known here for all of our different uh, parks that we have and the theme parks and all of the just wonderful vacation spots. He says, but one trouble with that, he said, is that we become known as uh, the land of amusement. And he said, if we look at the word amusement, what, what does that really mean? What is it saying? And he talked about it is not thinking, ah- Muse, yeah, Uh, there you go. And and that is exactly where we are in a nation right now. It's like we've stopped thinking, right?
3: Right, and uh, one of my uh, comments that I make over and over again is, are they aware and do they care? And when I counseled, I said, that's my biggest thing, counseling, executives, counseling children, is first of all for them to be aware of their problem or their situation. What I said. But a lot of times people are aware, but they don't care. And if they care, they will really do something to change it. Mm. And that's the challenge in America. You know, I think people are finally getting aware. I mean, you see parents reacting now to what's being taught in schools. And you're down there in Florida, right in one of the central areas of that. Uh, there's a huge movement down there for civics training, which is fantastic. Because I talk to people that are, that are immigrants and very pro immigrant, and when they come over, they have to learn all about our, our culture. They have to learn all about our Constitution. They have to learn all about our Declaration of Independence. They say, and then they go out and they meet the students from our schools that know nothing about it. And uh, so Florida should be uh, definitely gets great credit for trying to teach uh, civics and making sure that people, because most Americans are not aware of what our rights are. And just becoming aware now, and you find them challenging and saying, how did this happen? How did suddenly evil become good and good become evil? I mean, you know, people are shocked right, with, uh, with where people are coming from. And I think So part of it is being aware and uh, not being amused. And there's a lot of amusements right now. People would like to keep us busy with a lot of things going on, and, well, the, the, uh, trying to get you distracted.
2: The new book that you came out with is obviously a follow-up, and it's called The Rise of the True Blue Rebellion. And so it, right. it, it extends the story on down and uh, obviously th- I mentioned earlier there's a measure according to the write- up that I've read on these books, a measure of satire. How is it that do you pull that in to the writing?
3: Well originally it was written as satire when I talked about a this is 2013 and, and published had it out, out and had it re-edited but before uh, Trump's election and um, we were talking there about a rigged election. In Michigan and a digital candidate. Now, that doesn't sound all that radical now, but when you look back and realize when that was written, who would have ever thought anybody could run in oh my 2020 gosh. and stay in your basement?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I mean you were on the spot, man.
3: <coughs> yeah, and uh, anyway, uh, so, and rigged elections. Now, people said at the time, I wrote really, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of over the top because I said about how many things are rigged. And I said, well, the only problem I've had. I don't do much Latin, but one one Latin word I learned a long time ago is qui bono, who benefits, follow the money. And I said, man, there is so much money in gambling right now. Who would have ever thought that you would see these large casinos trying to amuse people and take their money from them, even though everybody knows the odds are stacked against them? And so I, I, I realized that um, I, I appreciate your comment about amusement because I see that all over. People get being distracted uh, into the what I call comfort zone versus the combat zone. Mm-hmm. and just, uh, you know, losing this country. And when you talk to people that have come here, uh, genocide victims that have come, their question to me is, where else can we go? Yeah, There's no America. Where can we go? And I think uh, Christians are going to have to become aware of that, not just Christians, but uh, conservative people, uh, hopefully Christians mainly among them, but a bunch of other people, other faiths too, have to sit back and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we lose this, where can we go? Uh, there's no other place this is the last great place and i don't say that as a you know just because i'm american but i've traveled a lot fortunately in my life i've been able to travel on most continents and most places whenever i came back there went oh my goodness we need to really be thankful for what we have here almost to the point of getting off a couple times off the plane and kissing the pavement uh,
2: really runway
3: so glad i was back coming back from some of the um, third world countries which now it's uh, yeah, it's amazing. and, and so I, I, that's why I want people to be number one, be aware of what we have and then also to care. and uh, if they do that and then start saying, "Well, what can I do as one person? that's why this 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 one guy, that's why I've got this one guy that stands up and says, "This is what I'm going to start to do and they and the, the book is about other characters that do the same thing that really that really take time and take and get invested in trying to care about other people, other human beings. And I know it sounds uh, overly uh, <laughs> what's the word, but but it's true.
2: Oh and my we're goodness! All a
3: mentor.
2: It's yeah, it sounds so interesting, mentor. and uh, yeah. the the author's name is Jerry Wilbur, Doctor Jerry Wilbur, spelled W I L L B U R, and the books are called True Blue Rebellion. I have to have you back on my show, my friend. This is way too interesting. So uh, let's just plan a, a couple of months down the way or whatever to have you back. And let's talk more about it, no especially problem. as we got to see uh, this election starting to come into view. I'm sure that a lot of your books are going to look more and more prophetic as the uh, these days go by, my <laughs> friend. Uh, eerily utter, prophetic. Yeah, eerily yeah. prophetic. Right. <laughs> I like it. Do- Dr. Jerry yeah. Wilbur. thank you for being with me in this segment.
3: So thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
2: All right, and we'll be right back. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on the Shepherd Pastors and Financial Leaders. Do you need expert accounting or tax
0: help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit petraworldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095.
2: Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando offers three distinct areas of study, an evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. With me right now is Dr. Alveda King, and she is up in the D.C. area for some special meetings. The niece of Martin Luther King, Jr., And we've had her on before. It's so nice to have you back on the programs. I I really appreciate it.
4: I'm so glad to join you. And on Friday at 12 o'clock, I'll be with a wonderful group of women, and we are going to be talking about the importance of life from the womb to the tomb and beyond. Mm. So it's so important to
2: now, I know that you've done these kind of events before, and uh, the, the particular group that, uh, you, that is with uh, this organization is called She Leads America, and you're amplifying voices that, you, according to uh, the writing here, it says that are underrepresented in the pro-life movement. And so there there's so much. I mean, I know you see it all the time and you deal with it. People think that as uh, of last June, when, when Roe was overturned, that that might have changed dramatically abortions in America, but yet it really didn't. It just moved the discussion back to the states. And I know here in Florida, we're actually having more abortions this year than we have in the previous years. So this Heck, is yeah. this is a real important thing, isn't it?
4: Actually, we are amplifying the voices of the babies always because they can't speak until they are out of the womb and in their mother's, in their parents' arms. That's right. And certainly underrepresented communities such as the African-American community, the Latino community, uh, the Native American community. And there are so many women who have joined now and said, it's time for me to speak up and to speak out. And there are more abortions, of course, in certain states and then less in certain
2: states. Right, that's true. With the
4: reversal of Roe v. Wade coming back to the states it gave all the states another opportunity to take a look at human dignity, human life, and to really reverse the horrible impact of abortion to the loss of over 60 million legal abortions in our lifetimes. And a lot of those have been African-American babies, for example. So this is human dignity we're talking about, from yeah. the womb to the tomb and beyond.
2: Now, you know, when you talk about African-American babies being aborted, I mean, when you go back and you look at Margaret Sanger's express comments and purposes for Planned Parenthood and all of that, uh, there was no doubt about it that they were being targeted in that day. And even to this day, after all these years later, we had Roe v. Wade for for almost 50 years and the greatest segment of our population so impacted so affected and generations lost would be among babies of African Americans right
4: and actually two of those were my babies and one another one to a miscarriage because of harm done to my body by the abortions so I my babies are in those statistics as well oh, my, and I yeah, suffered I'm... the horrible impact the after effects as a woman having to deal with reality that abortion was not a gift, but an absolute curse, and it still is today. Many African-American women have experienced that, but women in general. So many women have questioned that decision to abort. We've got, for example, silent, no more awareness, and I'm still a spokesperson with that through Priests for Life. My Dear Goddaughter, Angela Stanton King, has opened a what would have been a long time ago called a maternity home. But now it's a home for women, young mothers, expecting mothers. And so she has opened a home to say we've got to help women make a decision to choose life. There has to be a better choice than killing a person. And that is the message that we continue to proclaim now state to state uh, since it has been reversed. The issue of abortion has been sent back for consideration at the state level.
2: Yes. And, you know, and that's one of the things that is really being looked at here in Florida right now for our situation because again we became almost when the you look at all the other states around us that had trigger laws going into effect it it really did cut back for them but here's florida now with our wonderful governor that is doing all that he can do yet we see an increase so there's a lot at stake here and, you know, one thing that I know it impacts you greatly, Dr. King, and that would be as a person who's undergone this and you hear our politicians today talk about abortion in terms of women's health and a, a good thing and how it doesn't hurt anyone. It, it's, you know, that's just a bunch of lying, isn't it?
4: It is just so very untrue. And, you know, right now there's another big debate in the country right this minute about the heartbeat bill and uh, Governor DeSantis' this hard work to give us the heartbeat bill and then whether President Trump would sign a heartbeat bill or a limit on how many weeks you could wait to abort a baby. And so so there's a misunderstanding going around, President Trump's point is that babies are not political footballs. They're people, and it's not bean counting. It's not a game. Mm -hmm. And so let's take some real serious looks and stop arguing about whether it should be 15 weeks, five weeks, eight weeks, et cetera. So there's so much debate over numbers right now that we're almost about to forget that every effort we make to rescue the babies is important, and we shouldn't be debating and arguing and making this into a lot of political angst (laughs) but to continue to fight to save all of these babies.
2: I'm so grateful for you because you are using the platform that God has given you and you are uh, speaking out. And I wonder if you could, for the the bulk of us that will not be able to be in that meeting tomorrow in D.C., which is obviously uh, probably (laughs) 99.99% of us that are listening to you right now, if we could be a fly on the wall and listen in to what you're going to be saying, how will you be challenging those tomorrow?
4: I want everyone to remember what a victory it has been to reverse Roe v. Wade and send the questions back to the states. That's important. Our work really just went to a new level. It wasn't over with that reversal. It's a time now to reach families, to reach mothers, to save babies, to not argue and fight with our neighbors, but to come together with a united purpose, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as one blood, one human race, from the womb to the tomb and beyond. Mm. That gives us a genuine fresh start for life, and that is what we're going to be discussing in the meeting.
2: Oh my goodness! And of course, by the time that uh, this program airs, that will have just ended because this will be airing on Friday. And I know that this this fight that you're doing, this this fight that you're involved with, uh, it's a good fight. It's an important battle, and it's one that we can make a difference. And again, it this is a call uh, all, all across the country, really. This is a call to get involved. Right?
4: This is a Good fight of faith. We're fighting the good fight of faith for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from the womb to the tomb and beyond. Absolutely.
2: What do you see uh, your calendar looking like going forward for the rest of this year?
4: My calendar remains full. I'm 73 years old. And the reason my 73rd birthday is not until January 2024, but I count the months in my mother's womb. Mm. So I'm already 73 years old, very busy. I have music available that I really would like to encourage people to go to alvedaking.com and to check out some of my music videos, which also proclaim life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I and many of my associates and colleagues sing about life, and we encourage. Some of it is scripture. All of it isn't. So I really want to encourage you. I'll be back in the studio all the rest of this year. You'll see me on television and maybe in your community.
2: Oh, I hope so. I've been uh, privileged to interview you before, and it's a joy to see you. Although we didn't get to talk at the NRB, it was great having you in Orlando Uh, for the National Religious Broadcasters, and uh, we did get to see each other there. This is an important message that God's given you, and through all of these different ways, you're speaking, you're singing, we pray that God's blessing will be upon you. Thank you for what you're doing.
4: Thank you. God bless you.
2: Again, that was Dr. Alveda King, niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and a great spokesperson for life, so honored that she was here. Well, you hear me talk a lot about Dr. Albert Mohler's The Briefing. It's a podcast I listen to regularly, and he had a very important one on this week. It's all about a trajectory of concern. Let me let you listen to a bit of this podcast from Dr. Al Mohler.
0: You have the progressivist culture that's simply saying it's not enough to be quiet about what the Bible teaches on sexuality and gender issues. You've got to actually affirm what we demand that you affirm. So we've been seeing this progressively in the case of Andy Stanley. There's no joy in talking about this, but I think it's necessary to talk about this. On Monday, I dropped a major article entitled The Train is Leaving the Station, published at World Opinions. I'm following up on that now on the briefing in order to set the larger context and to extend the conversation a bit. What drew our attention most recently is the fact that Andy Stanley and the church is set to host a conference known as the Unconditional Conference. It's going to be located at a campus in North Point Community Church there in the metro Atlanta area. Now, the website for the conference bills it as a two-day premier event, which is designed especially for parents of LGBTQ plus children and ministry leaders. Here's a quote you will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind. One statement above all others seems to stand out to me in that description. Quote, no matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. End quote. Now, I just want to go at those words for a minute, the quieter middle space, because I just want to say right up front, I believe that's illusory. I don't believe that quieter middle space exists. I can see why many might hope that it would exist. You might hope there would be a place which is not so confrontational, not so controversial, not so loud. But here's where we understand it's the culture making this loud. This is not that conservative, biblically-minded Christians stood up in the public square and said, what I want to talk about is sexuality and gender. It is a revolution in those issues that is now presented to us as if we must surrender to it. And one of the most important responsibilities of the Christian church is to talk about these issues out loud, but to talk about them in explicitly biblical terms, consistent with Christian moral witness over the course of the last two millennia on issues of marriage, sexuality, and gender. But the other reason I drew attention to those words, the quieter middle space, is because not only do I believe middle space doesn't exist, I believe this conference is anything but middle space. And that was the instigation for looking at it much more closely. Why would I say that? Well, the advertising for the conference indicates that this is actually going to be an event designed as a platform for normalizing the LGBTQ plus revolution, while at the same time claiming that this is a representation of quieter middle space. Now, as I say, there is no middle space on these issues. And evidence of that is the fact that at the conference, scheduled speakers advertised for the event include two men who are married to other men. At least they're married to each other, according to current civil law. Biographical background on speakers Justin Lee and Brian Neitzel indicates that both men are now married to men. They're in what are now described as same-sex marriages. Justin Lee's been on many platforms speaking about this issue. He's very well known. For arguing for the legitimacy of monogamous same-sex relationships, that's the terminology that he's been using, monogamous same-sex relationships. Brian Neitzel likewise presents seminars on what is described as restoring LGBTQ plus faith. But what you're looking at here are two men married to other men. Let's just be clear: this isn't middle space. This is declaring sides, and this is not the side consistent with biblical Christianity. This is the side that I believe is not only incompatible with biblical Christianity, but cannot coexist in one space with Biblical Christianity. So the first thing we notice when we look at this advertisement for the conference is that it's going to feature two men, both of whom are married to other men, as speakers at the conference and presenters. Another major speaker at the conference is David Gushy at Mercer University, a prominent intellectual. He's been very honest about his own change of mind on the moral status of LGBTQ plus behaviors and relationships. And he's been writing about these things now for many years. In what's identified as the definitive edition of his book, which is entitled Changing Our Mind, the subtitle of the book, by the way, is A Landmark Call for Inclusion of LGBT Christians, David Gushy traces his own pilgrimage to eager LGBTQ advocacy. In the book, he states that he will, quote, grant the historical claim that the church has believed that same-sex acts and relationships are always wrong, end quote. But the book traces his own change of mind on this issue, And he's very honest. He believes that the church should change its mind on the issue as well. He's very honest about this. In the book, he traces his own change of mind. Indeed, that's the title of the book, Changing Our Mind, on the question of sexuality, gender, and marriage. And he's clearly come to the position that he thinks the Christian church has been historically wrong on this issue. He is clear about his position. He's honest about his reasoning. He is very, very straightforward in his reading of the Bible, how he understands the Bible and sees those texts. He's honest about his conclusions. I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate the clarity with which he makes his argument. Furthermore, I'm pretty confident that David Gushy would agree that the issues at stake in this debate reflect the deepest issues of Christian conviction, right down to our understanding of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how we read the Bible. So when I look here, what I see is an honest disagreement over what both of us agree would be the most fundamental Christian convictions, including how we read the Bible, how we define marriage, how we understand sexuality, sexual morality, and gender. What we face here is an honest disagreement. As David Gushy writes, quote, I am instead asking whether devout gay and lesbian Christians might be able to participate in the covenantal, marital, sexual, ethical standard, one person for life, faithful and exclusive, in a loving, non-exploitative, non-coercive, Reciprocal relationship that is the highest expression of Christian sexual ethics, which, in fact, a goodly number are already doing. He says, in conclusion, to this point, I can't find a compelling reason to say no anymore. So let's just understand that's about as clear a statement as we could imagine from anyone. It's absolutely free from evasion or confusion. He's speaking on the platform at the unconditional conference at the invitation of Andy Stanley and his church. So this conference is taking a side. This is not the middle. Honestly, looking at the materials written by and presented by those who will be speaking at the conference, this is nowhere near the middle. And as I've already said, there isn't a middle. You're either going to stand on biblical conviction or you're going to call for a redefinition of Christian sexual morality and the practice of the Christian church and preaching about these issues, teaching about these issues, even right down to how the Christian church understands male and female, man and woman, boy and girl, marriage, sexual morality, the whole gamut. Now, as a theologian, I just feel a responsibility to say that what this represents is a departure from historic normative biblical Christianity. I think both sides understand this is the most basic disagreement we could imagine. It's over sex and gender. It's over ontology and being. It's over scripture, the authority of scripture and the interpretation of scripture. It's over God and the gospel. It just doesn't get any more basic than this.
2: That was the voice of Dr. Al Mohler. You can always listen to The Briefing. It's at his website... AlbertMoller.com, and you can sign up, have it delivered to your inbox every day. I highly recommend it. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Afternoons with Mike right here on The Shepherd. E.C. Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, E.C. Waters is a top trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Here we are now toward the end of another week, and with me in this segment I've got a friend, Rob Motte. He is the writer for the Associated Press Specializing in all things NFL, and my man, we're now in the season. It is uh, it's off to a big start. A few notable injuries, right?
1: Yeah, Mike, uh, some devastating injuries for sure. Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles in the first game on the fourth snap of his season for the New York Jets. We were all excited to see what Aaron Rodgers can do with the Jets this year. They finally got themselves a quarterback and devastating injury for that team and they certainly aren't going to be Super Bowl contenders without Aaron Rodgers somewhat surprising that they're sticking with Zach Wilson as their starting quarterback they haven't even brought in a veteran to be a backup or to adjust in case that he gets hurt Tim Boyle is a relative unknown as the now backup so that's a tough one for the New York Jets and really Mike I think for the entire NFL because when you have an opportunity to watch a guy like Aaron Rodgers who is at the tail end of his career. There's no assurances, no guarantees that he's going to want to come back, although he said he will. But it's a tough, long, arduous road to recovery, and he's going to be 40 years old. We're seeing the, the tail end of his career. So I, I think those of us who appreciate the sport would have really enjoyed to watch him play again. And then this past week, Nick Chubb on Monday Night Football tore, his, tore up his knee. Uh, gruesome injury, so bad, Mike, that they didn't even want to show the replay. On I Monday saw that. They,
2: <laughs> it's yeah. really crazy that the word censure was used. They they censured the picture because it was so bad.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since we've seen one that bad. I, I, I can go back, and I'm sure you might remember this, too. Joe Seisman, I want to say in the 80s, I, I'm guessing, with the Washington Redskins at the time, and I think they were playing the New York Giants on a Monday night, and I think he broke his fibula at the time. I didn't know what any of the injuries meant. I was a kid, but that was pretty gruesome. And I'm guessing I never saw this replay, so I'm guessing this was right there uh, with those. And, of course, Nick Chubbs, the uh, four-time Pro Bowl running back for the Cleveland Browns. So that's a tough, tough injury for that team.
2: You know, it's sad. There's a bit of ambulance chaser blood in me, I do believe, because when I hear about something like that and see a picture that has it kind of uh either frosted out or maybe a square that's placed over it so you don't see the angle of the injury. I always have to dig a little deeper and I found one picture and it was gnarly. To say the least, wow. it was it was nasty. And you've got uh, you we all know how knees are supposed to go. Uh and they're not supposed to be bent that direction. <laughs> that's that's really all there is to it. It was it's awful. And I know it had to be painful, and i I'm rather shocked that he was able to look pretty normal in some photos before he was carted off. Uh, he looked like he was just laying there, and you wouldn't have ever known that something was wrong after such an injury. but boy, I know that that had to hurt, right
1: Yeah, absolutely and and you see that, and then you just remember that these are young men who are out there risking. In some ways, they're they're playing football and they're risking their health because we've seen guys who have sustained numerous injuries that have had long-term effects. When you look at some of the older football players, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about head injuries, but uh, for Nick to be able to get on that car, and you're right, I, I've seen guys who have suffered far less severe injuries. Uh, act as if they were in more excruciating pain. And everyone's got a different tolerance level, right, Mike? But, That's right. Uh, it was it was pretty remarkable.
2: Yeah, it certainly was. And, you know, going back to the Aaron Rodgers, now I did not see that one happen live, but I did watch the replay and they did show that replay. And it didn't take much figuring out that this was going to be a pretty nasty injury when you saw his foot bend the way it did. And of course, that injury was not the typical ACL or whatever uh, type of injury to the knee. Uh, that one was an Achilles injury. And that yeah, that yeah that's a tough one for someone in uh, the age group that Aaron Rodgers is in, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a difficult injury for anyone to come back from. And Uh, I did a little bit of research, had to write about this, and and looked at some of the players who've come back from it in the plus 30, older than 30, older than 35. Haven't seen too many who came back older than 35. There have been guys in their 30s. Kevin Durant in the NBA, uh, a a superstar basketball player, he's come back from that. Uh, I believe he was at the time 32, uh, somewhere around there. I I remember Ryan Howard, who is a a – Slugging first baseman for the philadelphia phillies who had a five or six year span last decade that would have rivaled babe ruth he was among the greatest home run hitters uh of our generation and he was on the path for the hall of fame and he tore his achilles on the final swing of the 2011 postseason and he never came back the same way he came back he came back a year later but he was just never the same player as a power hitter with an Achilles injury like that, and you just wonder with Aaron Rodgers, you have to drop back, you have to put some, obviously, pressure and torque and everything else on that Achilles, on that leg, you're driving the ball, it's extremely important as a quarterback, you can't hide that injury. I'm sure he's he's certainly a world-class athlete, he certainly, if he decides, and he has said that we haven't seen the last of him, so that, to me, would indicate he wants to come back, but Uh, I would certainly expect him to put in all of the work and all of the effort to to be as close to 100% as possible. But doctors will tell you who's dealt with this kind of injury. It usually takes a player a year to kind of get back to somewhat feeling normal. And in Aaron Rodgers' case, the year will be – he'll be going on 41. And then is he going to want to play another season?
2: Yeah. uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a a very tough one.
2: It is. And, you know, these kind of injuries, they tend to – make you weaker in that spot. It's not like a bone breaking where you, they say that your bone is stronger afterwards. Not so with ligaments or things like this. You know, I'm trying to remember wasn't, wasn't that an Achilles injury that Isaiah Thomas uh, suffered in the, I think his last game he was playing in the NBA. I I believe it was an Achilles. Do you recall that one?
1: It it may have been Kobe Bryant did have suffer an Achilles injury. Kobe Bryant's Achilles injury was, pretty uh, amazing in that he tore his Achilles and he was fouled and he stayed in the game uh, and went to the foul line to take the two free throws, then left the court and and had surgery. And he also, when he came back, uh, wasn't quite, he was the tail end of his career, came back, had some elbow and other injuries and only played one or two more seasons. I don't quite remember uh, Isaiah Thomas, but, uh, that, that certainly may have happened.
2: For oh sure. my goodness. And then, you know, this week, the Cowboys, as we stay with this uh, final, uh, little bit on, on knee injuries here, uh, Trevor, uh, Trevon Diggs suffers a knee injury as well. And that didn't happen in a game that happened in practice. And that, oh man, that's just, to me, that's like a double whammy when it's one thing to get hurt. You, you kind of expect some injuries in a game, you just hate to hear it when you go out for a practice and something like that happens and it takes them out for the entire season, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's extremely disappointing because uh, when, w- you go out and practice and you're hoping. That's the goal of every practice. Is the goal is that you don't want someone to get injured. And for him to tear his ACL in practice is great as this. Dallas Cowboys have looked the first two weeks of the season, Mike. They've yeah. dominated the two New York teams. Their defense and as great as they look, seventy to ten, they outscored their opponents. Their offense hasn't quite yet been in sync. I think they've left a lot of points on the scoreboard and, and they're certainly haven't hit their stride yet. But defensively, they've been outstanding. They've been excellent and he's certainly a key member of that secondary. They brought in Stephon Gilmore at the other cornerback position, a former defensive player of the year. And with Diggs and Gilmore, they they look pretty set there. Of course, they have Micah Parsons, who I think is the best defensive player in football, playing at the edge rusher linebacker spot. But that's a tough, tough loss for the Cowboys, the team that I picked to go to the Super Bowl. And now they have to recover and, and find a way to overcome that the loss of Trayvon Diggs.
2: You know, I know you've seen this as a writer at your level, when you have a team like the Cowboys and they're very talented and obviously a a legacy of being America's team and they're out there, it's often that an injury will open up another player who might've been a bit unheralded before, and then they kind of step up to the limelight and surprise everybody. So that kind of a thing could happen on a team like the Cowboys, right?
1: Absolutely, Mike. And you know what? That leads me into the guest this week on Faith on the Field Show. It's Jeff Hostetler. If you recall, Jeff Hostetler was a quarterback for the New York Giants, also played for the Raiders. But in the 1990 football season, he was a backup quarterback to Phil Simms. Phil Simms gets hurt, and Jeff Hostetler steps into the starting lineup, leads the Giants to two wins in a regular season, and then three wins in the playoffs, including the Super Bowl. And he goes from being a backup to a Super Bowl-winning starting quarterback. Isn't that something? uh, Yeah, it happens. It certainly does happen.
2: Yeah, and it's fun to see it when it does. It's not fun to see a player go out, but I tell you what, these guys that are at that level, I know you and I have talked about this before, but it's one thing to play college ball, as big as that is and as hard as it is to get at, let's say, a D1 level for any team at all, especially for those of us that love the SEC the way I do you know, that's a big deal. But then you get to the NFL and that's, that's at a whole next level where everybody on the team is good enough to play in the NFL. That's the bizarre difference. And, and yet to realize that you have a lot of players who are that good and yet they don't get a lot of playing time. So it's fun to see them step up, even if it is at the expense of an injury.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And my favorite example is uh, Nick Foles, who stepped up when Carson Wentz was injured for the Philadelphia Eagles in 2017. And uh, Nick was a guy who had contemplated retirement, going into ministry. Uh, that's always been his passion. He's he's one of the strongest believers I've ever come across in professional sports. And he steps in and he leads the Eagles to not only a Super Bowl championship, but they beat the big bad New England Patriots. He outplays Tom Brady in the Super Bowl and and there's Nick on that stage hoisting the Vince Lombardi trophy, uh, praising God and, and just talking. It, basically every time Nick had a microphone in front of him, it was like a sermon in a news conference. Mm. That's how incredible he was. So that is my that's my favorite story of a guy stepping up, having success, and then using that platform that God blessed him with, elevating him for that moment. Nobody would have ever expected Nick Foles to beat Tom Brady and be an MVP in a Super Bowl game, and he did, and he certainly used that platform to magnify the Lord in every way possible.
2: You know, that is one of the great things about sport in general, is just to see the fact that believers like that, they get these platforms, and then not only do they get them, but they take the ride all the way to the fullest impact by uh, giving God glory the way they do in those moments. It is a beautiful thing and I think it has to have an impact even though a lot of the newscasters they may not write about it with the same love and zeal that you would, but I think it has an impact even on those that are not believers.
1: Yeah, I certainly hope so I, and, and I hope it doesn't discourage guys from talking about their faith, from showing uh, how important their faith is from displaying it publicly from taking a knee and praying on the field or in the end zone or wherever they may, may be and whichever sport they're playing in. And whenever a microphone is in front of them, I love when guys uh, give the glory first and foremost to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I saw Tua Tagovailoa do it for the Miami Dolphins the other day, uh, a couple times in, in, in Miami's victories. And I hope that they continue to do that. I know there are some cameras that pan away from the guys praying and I, I know some eyes roll and, and there's the cynics and the critics, but that's okay. Uh, continue to use that platform. Continue to tell the world uh, who it is, whose you are. Uh, and that's what we're talking about this week: is whose you are. We are, we are made in the image of uh, and likeness of God. We belong to Him. We, uh, Jesus paid the price. For us, we belong to him. He paid the price on that cross, and we just have to keep telling the world who we belong to.
2: Man, I tell you what, you are a writer like no other. A host of this incredible program right here on the Shepherd Faith on the Field. Friends, listen for it on Saturday. It's going to be great. And Rob Mati, our guest here for this uh, this little bit of our program today, uh, is is one of the most knowledgeable writers out there. And uh, obviously, you're doing it at the highest level level with associated press so we look forward to hearing your program my friend and catching back up with you next time okay
1: mike it's always a pleasure to join you thank you have a wonderful weekend
2: all right and friends you have the same we'll see you next time right here on afternoons with mike